So I have a five-year-old who got to come to big church today to worship with us, and, and so I just want to let the uh, sound people know that he, he could hear the electric guitar, and he was, he was pumped about that. So uh, anyway, but uh, he's, he's a very musical child. We love all three of our kids, and um, he just started kindergarten, our youngest, but one thing that, that little Andrew will do is he's just very musical, and he loves to sing and write songs to the Lord, and he'll take whatever instrument he can find, and he'll just... He'll bang it, he'll strum it, he'll pound it, and he will just sing praise to God. And I love that about my son. Um, and I, I, a lot of that, I, I saw a video just this morning of a little five-year-old from Indonesia. And her name is Trinity. And she sings this song with a guitar. And the title of, of the song, or the, or the meaning of the, of course, she's speaking in her language, is, I am happy to be God's child. And this little girl is just beaming with praise to God, strumming that guitar, giving glory to God. And she concludes her song with the universal word of praise that transcends all nations, all ethnic groups, and it's Hallelujah. And we sang that together, uh, the word of heaven, the word that we'll say in heaven together, a heavenly word, hallelujah. And why is that significant? Well, she, she is happy to be God's child. But two years ago, she was coming to gather in a local church like we have this morning, and, and there was a bomb that went off by extremists in her country that wanted to, to kill her and all of the people that were with her. And I want you to think about that as we, in a moment, um, recite the Apostles' Creed. And this morning, how we'll focus on how we are to believe, we believe in God the Father Almighty. And that, that means that we are God's children if we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful promise. But I want us to think about that, that we, we didn't walk in this room today um, even pondering the idea that there could be a bomb in this room or that somebody could rush in and do something uh, violent against us. We're, we're so blessed in our country with the freedoms that we have. And I want us to realize that when we say the Apostles' Creed, this ancient confession of faith that we join with believers all over the world for centuries who have confessed these words of truth. And so I want to invite you uh, to stand with me. All right, just for a moment. Stand with me if you can. And the, the Apostles' Creed will be on the, the screens behind me. It's also inside your bulletin um, as well. But I want to say the Apostles' Creed, all of it together this morning. So say it with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Have a seat.
And so for those that are new today, I know we've got quite a few of the LaGrange, all the LaGrange football team here with us, the college team. We're so glad y'all are here. And it was a, I joined them with that great breakfast that they, they had. And um, so you guys try to stay awake, okay? Um, but it's really good, good food that we had, a good fellowship. But, but we're doing this series on the Apostles' Creed, this very ancient confession of faith. And we kind of looked at the background of it, some introductory things last week. And so we want to make uh, tools available to you as, as, as parents, as individuals in this room. And we're starting something kind of new. And it's a, it's a children's insert that actually has a, information for your kids to be aware of. It's a different color. And also in our children's church time, we'll make sure the kids are learning what we're learning today about God the Father Almighty. So all I want to do this morning is, is, is break down that phrase. I believe... In God the Father Almighty. All right, let's just break that phrase apart. So I believe uh, this confession must be our own personal belief. It must be our own personal belief. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans. If you don't have your Bibles, it's okay. There's some pew Bibles there. There's also be the scriptures on the screen behind me. And also you can follow along the sermon in the bulletin. There's an outline. But in Romans 10, verses 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul says these words about how we can know that we are saved or born again or delivered or part of the body of Christ or to use another phrase that Paul uses to be in Christ. How can we know that? He says this in verses 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord simply means master, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's really wonderful that the Apostle Paul links both the confession with our mouth and the belief from our heart. And that's a personal confession. That's the point I want you to see. And when we say the Apostles' Creed or any other doctrinal statement of what we believe in, it is to be our very own personal expression of what we believe, of what I believe. Now, when you look at the book of Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul had a missionary partner named Silas, and they uh, created some issues there as they were sharing the good news about Jesus. And, And Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. And at midnight, we're told that Paul and Silas had been singing hymns and praise to God. And all the jailers that were there and the other guys in the jail heard them giving praise and glory and honor to God. They're they in Philippi. So these, these uh, Jewish guys were giving praise to Jesus there in this Philippian jail. But there was a mighty earthquake, we're told. And it shook the jail so much that all the bars were broken and the gates were opened and these two men and all the other prisoners had an opportunity to escape. And if you allowed prisoners serving under your care to escape, then that meant that you as a leader uh, would be put to death by the Roman government. And so that Philippian jailer was terrified for his life, yet we're told, Paul and Silas say, "We're, we're all here. We're all here. Look at Acts 16, 30, 31. One of the great verses about confession of faith in Jesus. So then he, he is the jailer. He brought Paul and Silas out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I mean, it doesn't get more point blank than that. 
What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Sometimes we hear that word believe, and we just don't necessarily know what it means. Or maybe we know what it means, but we find it hard to believe that that's really all it takes to be part of God's family. Really? Just believe? What does that word mean? Well, in the Greek, pistuo is the word. It means to put confidence in, to trust, to be persuaded of, persuaded of, to think to be true. Here's a verse as well that talks about belief in Jesus. And you may know it. Let's say it out loud together. It should be on the screen. John 3, 16 says this. For God so loved the world. Say it with me. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes, pastuo, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's a personal belief. I mean, our our faith is a personal faith. It's something that we can confess together, but I find it very important in the Apostles' Creed that it reads, I believe. I. Personal ownership of what we are to believe. Now, we see this again in the book of John in the 11th chapter. And this is a, a passage that I read Almost every time that I officiate a funeral service or a memorial service for someone who's gone to be with the Lord, I will read John 11, these verses 25 through 27. But in John 11, Jesus goes and he goes to comfort two sisters who lost their brother Lazarus. And when Jesus goes to them, Martha, the sister, comes out to him. Mary stays inside the home grieving. And Martha comes out and they have a conversation And he basically asked, she asked, Jesus asked her, do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe your brother will rise again? Oh, I believe my brother will rise again. And and she basically affirms what any good um, law-abiding Orthodox Hebrew woman would confirm and affirm that she believed in the final resurrection from the dead. But she realized her, her, her brother was dead. He would have been in the tomb for four days and she knew that she would see him one day at the end. She did not realize that Jesus was coming to do something very significant that day. That Jesus delayed his coming to her for a reason. That it might display the glory of God. So Jesus, before he calls Lazarus to come out of that tomb and the dead man begins to walk, before that happens, Jesus gives these incredible words of truth that you can hang on to. If they become your personal belief, these words will take you through any storm in life. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Pastuo, Though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But then he turns it to a question. He says, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. 
She personally said, yes, Jesus, I believe. And you and I are being asked the same question from our Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning and every day of our lives. Do you believe? Will you follow me? Will you know me? And it must be your personal response. No one else can make that decision for you. It doesn't matter what your parents taught you or what your grandparents want to believe about you. You must personally confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It must be your confession. That's why we say, I believe. I believe in God. I believe in God. Do you have confidence in God's existence? Do you have confidence in God's existence? You know, this question of the existence of God is quite a um, common discussion if you were to take a class on philosophy of religion. But it's, it's, it's really a, a non-discussion point when it comes to the Bible. The Bible begins in Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God. It begins with God. It assumes God. It assumes the obvious, the eternal God in the beginning. And then he does something. God speaks and brings about creation. The Bible doesn't seek to prove God's existence. The very fact that God has given revelation to us as humans, both through creation and through his word, is proof enough of God's existence. Look at Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is laying forth, and it goes all the way through chapter 3, really, of showing how universally all people, Jew, Gentile, that all of us are sinners, that all of us are rebels, that we have rebelled against the one true living God. And Paul answers the question, really, about whether someone is an agnostic or an atheist, Paul speaks the obvious in verses 19 through 20 of Romans 1. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. As the scripture says, the heavens declare the glory of God. So in creation, what God has done, it's so understood by all people, his invisible attributes are known. And that's why uh, for years now, scientists have been searching for what they call the God gene. Why is it that so many people believe in a transcendent God who is outside of time? Why, why can this not be stamped out by things like communism or radical secular humanism? Why can't those belief systems seem to stamp out this innate, inherent sense that people believe that there is someone, something out there greater than them in every culture? It's because God has wired us. We are made in His image and if we are his image bearers, Genesis 1, 
tells us that, male and female, in God's image as human beings. Therefore, we will see his attributes through creation and we will look up and we will say something greater made this. But where we go wrong as human beings is that we begin to worship what God has made and we don't worship the creator of all things. But still, though it's obvious, there are those who have questions whether God exists. And they're known as agnostics. And there are those who believe in God and they're believers and those who don't and they're atheists. So I want to kind of give you just three reasons quickly uh, that you can know to believe in God's existence. I mean, I, I believe in God's existence pretty simply because um, the Bible is the word of God, because Jesus Christ has transformed my life, because I have a personal relationship with God. God speaks to me through his word. God's Holy Spirit reveals truth to me. God redirects my steps. He is a living, real, breathing God. And I know that to be true personally, and I know it's to be true. But I want to give you uh, those that maybe want some theological or philosophical understanding it just makes sense and so there's three reasons to give you these are classical reasons for God's existence number one God's existence makes sense of the origin of the universe this makes sense of the origin of the universe I mean how can something like our universe come into existence out of nothing how well years ago the the prevailing view in physics and astronomy was that the universe was somehow eternal. But that kind of got shattered with the Big Bang Theory, that there was this point in time in which something happened that began, and it's proven through science that the universe is, is expanding. So it was, it was all together and it began to expand. And, and that's clearly what the Bible says. That in the beginning, this transcendent God outside of time, outside of creation, could speak. And it, boom, it comes about. And the universe has been expanding now under the leadership and creative power of God. Second, God's existence makes sense not just because of the cosmological or the first cause argument but but also because of, he makes sense of the complexity of the universe all around us there's these stamps of design um and it's created quite a controversy in modern science between those that hold to intelligent design and those that hold more of a traditional theory of evolutionary thought but this is just common sense, you know. William Paley was a philosopher and he used the illustration of walking on the beach and finding a watch. And when you pick it up, you see uh, the design of that watch and you automatically assume that there was a designer, there was a watch builder who made that watch. When you see a building like this, there was someone who built it. When you see a beautiful painting, you know there was an artist who drew it when you see or hear an amazing symphony orchestra play you know there was a composer of that music and the more complex the design the greater the intelligence required to produce it listen the universe is so complex no one can fully understand it but God the human body is so complex just DNA alone it has the fingerprints of God because who else could design this? 
complex. We're not machines. I mean, we, we have all these things that are working and functioning together, but there's, there's life in us. There's spirit in us. It, it, it has to come from this great spiritual being who's all-knowing and all-powerful. Number three, God's existence makes sense of our objective moral values. And this was the clincher for the agnostic C.S. Lewis. God's making sense of morality. You know, objective moral values are those values that are valid whether anyone believes in them or not. Those performing horrible deeds like the genocide in Rwanda or the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, those that had a view of those they were putting to death as if they were less than human, therefore they could eliminate them. That might have been that person or that viewpoint of that group of people, and they may have thought they had moral justification to do so, but they were wrong. Universally, people understand that that is wrong. Torturing innocent people is wrong. Child abuse is wrong. Rape is wrong. Murder is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Love, sacrifice, equality, honesty, courage, those things are objectively right. We all know it all around the world. And there's huge problems with the idea of these impersonal laws of nature somehow leading us as human beings to have these moral obligations to do what is right. Rather, those moral obligations arise from our personal relationships. Those moral standards presuppose an absolute sense of moral standards or righteousness. Which in turn presuppose the existence of an absolute personality. And what do we find in the Bible? God, who is the absolute in perfection, morality, power, truth, and justice. This makes sense. So don't, don't, let, don't let people push you around about belief in God. Who is this God? Our Father who loves us. Our Father who loves us. In the Old Testament, God is said to be father of the nation of Israel or the father of individuals 15 times. And that's quite a few times. But the Old Testament is really long as well. It's the longer portion of our Bibles. I'm holding up my Bible here. Here's Matthew starting here. There's a lot more pages for the Old Testament than the New. Right? But still 15 times is enough to have a doctrine about God being Father. But when you come to the Gospels, there is this revolutionary turn, this shift in which Jesus, his favorite term for, the father, for God was Father. He speaks the name Father 65 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the book of John, he speaks the name Father over 100 times. The Apostle Paul in his letters over 40 times. Add that up over 200 times in a much shorter section of the Bible that we find Father, 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 Father. His disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. He says, pray then like this, Matthew 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So what is the significance of us saying, I believe in God the Father first? No, the religion uses this kind of language to refer to God. It's, it's a little bit in the Old Testament, but we know from the extra-biblical Jewish sources, it's not in their practice to refer to God like this as Father. 
We know from Islam, Muslims are told in the Quran to rebuke Christians for calling God their loving father because humans are just things that God has created. It's in the Quran. I looked it up last week. Number two, why is it significant that we say God the Father? It implies a personal relationship between God and us. I want to show you two passages. Romans 8, 14 through 17 and Galatians 4, 4 through 7. So we come to Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. This is a chapter about our life in the Holy Spirit, that there's no condemnation for those of us in Jesus Christ. You come to verse 14. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, son, that's a, that's a term of relationship. A son, that implies a father, doesn't it? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're family. God is our Father. And it's all through the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God moves in our life when we become a follower of Jesus and Jesus Christ becomes our, our greater, older brother. We're heirs with him and we have a father that we can call Abba. Abba is the literal Aramaic word that Jesus used. When he said father, when, when we read father in our New Testament, Jesus would have said Abba. It's a very much term of endearment like dad. There was intimacy implied with Father. Look at Galatians 4. Galatians was also written by the Apostle Paul. It's very similar in layout, a shorter book, but he talks about uh, not being justified through works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. Chapter 4, starting in verse 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Slave to what? A slave to sin. Now we're sons and daughters of God through the spirit of God who has adopted us into the family of God. The greatest way to really learn a truth is to experience that truth through story. Jesus knew this. That's why in Luke chapter 15, we're told that they're gathered around Jesus, tax collectors and sinners. And they wanted to hear Jesus teach. But there are also there some Pharisees. Those were very spiritual Hebrew Jewish guys that were, really knew the law real well. They knew the Bible. And there were teachers of the law as well. And they gathered around to hear Jesus as well. And they said, he welcomes and eats with sinners. Then Jesus told them three stories. The first story was about a lost sheep. The second story was about a lost coin. And this is the third story he told. There was a man, he had two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between his two sons and gave the younger son his share. Sometime after that, the younger son took all that he now had and went 
to a distant country. And there he squandered all his wealth on wild living. But soon a famine came upon that land. And that son began to have need. And all the money was gone. So he hired himself out to a local citizen who employed that son to work in the fields to feed the pigs. And that son longed to fill his stomach with the pods of food the pigs were eating. And when he came to his senses, he said, My father's hired servants have more than enough food to eat, and I am starving to death. This is what I'll do. I will return to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then he got up. And went back home to his father. Now while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him. And he was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son. And he embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, quick, bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. Let's have a celebration for this son of mine was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. But there was an older brother and he was out in the field and he heard uh, the sound of music and dancing in the house. And he came near and he asked one of the servants what was going on. The servant said, your brother has come home and he's safe and sound. So your father has killed the fattened calf for him and they're having a celebration. And oh, he became very angry. And that older brother refused to go in. And the father came out and began to plead with him saying, come in. And, and, and the older brother said, look, all these years I've slaved for you. I've never even once not obeyed your commands. But this son of yours goes and squanders all the money on prostitutes and he comes back home and you kill the fattened calf for him. But for me, you never once even gave us a young goat that we might can celebrate with my friends. The father said, all these years you've been with me. All that I have is yours. But can't you see we had to celebrate for this brother of yours was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. That's the image of the Father. Compassion, forgiveness, and mercy. And no other religion in the world offers that to us. I believe in God the Father, who is this God Almighty. Last point, El Shaddai, the all-powerful, all-sufficient God who can do anything and meet any need. I'll say this quickly. God called a man named Abram. He called him out of the region of Mesopotamia. And he called this man and made a covenant with this man and his family that he would be a blessing to all people. And God said, your descendants, Abram, will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But there was a little problem <laughs> More than just a little, a big problem. Both Abraham and Sarah were barren. They couldn't have children. And he was already an old man. And she was an old woman. And they could not have children. And so when Abraham was 86 years old, 
Sarah convinced him to take her slave girl, Hagar, and that he could marry her, have a child with her, thus fulfilling God's promise to him. Abraham went along with it. And all the problems in the Middle East we have start there. (laughs) But 13 years later, we come to Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am El Shaddai in the Hebrew. God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. El Shaddai is the name of the all-powerful, all-sufficient God who can do anything and meet any need. I'm going to read a quote from your bulletin insert from R. Kent Hughes, my favorite commentary on Genesis. Listen to what he says. He says, when God says this about who he is, El Shaddai, this is what he's saying. I am able to fulfill the awesome hopes that I've set before you of a people and a land. There is no need to let go of the promise because of your old age. There is no need to succumb to passive desperation. There is no need to scale down the promise to match your puny thoughts. No need to resort to fleshly expedience. No need of trying to fulfill the promise in any second-rate way. Everything, all your life, all your future lies in this. I am God Almighty. Church, everything, all your life, All your future lies in this. I am God Almighty. And if God is El Shaddai, and he is, then there is nothing our God cannot do. So here's the question for us. Is our life matching our faith confession in God the Father Almighty? I want to invite the band to come on up to lead us in our final song. Is your confession a personal confession? Is it something that you believe? At some point, it has to cross over from the faith of your parents or the faith of your church or the faith of your youth group or the faith of of your friend, and it has to become your own. You have to say, and I have to say, I believe. That's what's required in Scripture. Jesus saying, do you believe? We must say, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of the living God. I believe you are God the Father Almighty. All the things we've said that we believe, it has to be your personal belief. Who is this God? He is your Father. His existence is certain. He is the designer, the creator, the first cause. He makes sense of the world. He's your Father. He loves you. He loves me. He is El Shaddai, all-sufficient, all-powerful. He is worthy of our praise. And he is worthy of our lives. And all your life and all your future and all of my life and all of my future lies in this truth that our God is El Shaddai, God Almighty. May our lives match that confession. Pray with me. Father, I pray. I've shared my heart broken open your word as an offering unto you living God that you might send your fire Lord all I can do is assemble the wood like Elijah did but Lord God you must send the fire of your spirit Lord 
And I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that your Holy Spirit roams freely in this moment, God, as we consider these awesome truths from your word, that we might be a people who confess our faith in Jesus, that we might be a people who know that you are God, who is our Father, who loves us, that we can be your sons, that we might know that, God, whatever we're facing, that you are almighty. Strengthen us, O God, with these truths and transform us through the power of your Spirit and the authority of your Holy Word. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and sing. Like Pastor James said, this is the moment in our service where we simply ask you to respond. And your response may just be staying right where you are, singing about the Lord. It could be that your response is to come to this altar. Pastor James is here. I'm here. We have some ladies we can call upon as well if you need some encouragement or prayer. This altar is open. Maybe you want your faith to become your own. It's time for your faith to become your own faith, your own personal faith. You come forward, I pray with you. Maybe you say, Pastor, I just, I just need God's strength in my life. I, I'm facing so much right now. You come call upon El Shaddai. We'll pray with you. Put your hope in the Lord. He is here. He loves you. He's our Father. He's God Almighty. Let's confess our belief in Him.